Well, good afternoon once again, everyone. The text that is before us is on a handout, as well as in your Bibles. And I'm sorry that I don't have the page numbers of the ESV, but uh, there's a translation that I have uh, rendered in the handout that is before you. Has everybody got it? And is it available online for people to see? I see a thumb up there from Evan and him. Thank you. And I have uh, just um, um, added a few words and teased the meaning out a little bit. And I begin with it again. You have heard that it is said, you, that is singular, shall love your neighbor and you shall hate your enemy. I, on the other hand, say to you, love your enemies and pray for your persecutors so that you all may be sons of your Father who is in the heavens. For his sun shines on both the evil and the good, and he sends rain down on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even tax collectors do this. And if you greet your brethren alone, what more do you do than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You all shall therefore be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, if you have been following along with us in the Sermon on the Mount, you know that uh, this passage comes as the sixth of six statements where Jesus says, you have heard that it is said, but I say to you, and then he um, fulfills or he rounds out um, those parts of the protasis or the beginning part of the statement that are biblical. And he, he tries to uh, expand upon them and, to, um, and to, um, to bring out their meaning. So this is the sixth of six that we've heard. But I want to back up and just remind us a little bit of the background of the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. We began uh, a few months ago with um, the uh, Beatitudes, but before that, we drew attention to the fact that Jesus had a healing ministry among those who were sick, who were blind, who were downtrodden. And I suggested that that formed a background to Jesus being able then to say to both a group consisting of his disciples as well as to a group consisting of people more generally, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn and so on. Jesus was reaching out to these people, which include us because we're needy, and saying, you people are beneficiaries of God's goodness and God's grace. And as we went through the Beatitudes week by week, we also found that these statements characterize the disciple of Jesus, and that in a certain sense, we should emulate each one of the characteristics that is listed there in the Beatitudes. Then Jesus gave us two metaphors, one of salt and one of light. And he called us, not himself, but us as his followers, salt for the whole earth and light for the whole world, as though you and I are beacons of light, which we are. By the power of God's Holy Spirit and with his help, we are um, given the pleasure of extending the message of God's new kingdom to those around so we have work to do, we have a mission, and there are things that God has called us to do, regardless of how we might be feeling, whether happy, sad, uh, depressed, um, upbeat, or otherwise. So I suggested in, in that sermon that we are poignant illuminators of the kingdom. 
and that the, the motif of salt and light were both tied to the idea of uh, the sacrificial system that Jesus participated in that brought about a new covenant and that made us shining lights to the Gentiles along with Jesus. And then came a summary of the law. Jesus wanted to clarify before he went through these six statements that I've just been referring to that Jesus was not abolishing the law, but no, he was the prophetic culmination of the law. And he ended that statement about affirming the law and saying not one smidgen would be removed by saying that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, that was a tall order indeed because the scribes and the Pharisees uh, were meticulous about covering every base. So Jesus then, in verses 21 to 48 of the Sermon on the Mount, then went about to explicate and give us six examples of instances where here was a law, and this is what it really means. And as I thought further about these six instances, it seemed to me that they could be grouped together into three groups. Two of them, pertaining to murder and adultery come from the beginning of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20 and also in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And Jesus says, in effect, not only is the law thou shalt not murder, and not only is the law thou shalt not commit adultery, but the murder part includes as well the root of murder, what gets it going in the first place, and that is anger. And the law against adultery gets at the root of the matter, the starting point, as it were, which includes lust. So um, I was tempted initially to write that Jesus is, is calling for more, but really it's not so much more because the disciples or because the Pharisees were already doing more and more and more. But no, Jesus is telling us that we need to go deeper and wider in our understanding. And that hymn came to mind, deep and wide, deep and wide. There's a fountain flowing deep and wide. So uh, the words deep and wide could well be applied uh, to these six statements that Jesus offers as an example of the fuller righteousness that he's talking about that must exceed that of the Pharisees. Then when it came to another two pertaining to divorce and oaths, it seems that in each of these cases, the law provided a little bit of an out clause. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, there was an out clause for divorce. And as Jesus will explicate later in Matthew, he says, no, that wasn't the way it was planned originally. And Moses allowed that law, and God allowed Moses to, be, to give that law as a concession to sin. But I tell you, uh, divorce from the get-go was never my will to begin with. And so too with oaths, where it says, thou shalt not swear falsely, Jesus says, well, um, Come to think of it, you shouldn't really have to give an oath at all, because an oath is something where now you're really saying, I super mean what I'm saying. And Jesus says, you ought to mean what you say from the get-go. And so it's not so much a uh, prohibition on oaths, although it does curb oaths, so much as to say that let our yes be yes and our no be no. Say what you mean and leave it at that. And then when it comes to vengeance, um, I... Uh, a, um, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This was originally to set a limit on the extent to which you could retaliate. And Jesus then says, no, I don't want you to retaliate at all. I want you to give back. I want to remove that limitation and tell you that you need to go deeper and wider and actually do more, uh, not less. 
And so with the sixth, we come to the passage that I've just read at the beginning, where Jesus says, you have heard that it is said, you shall love your neighbor and you shall hate your enemy. But I, on the other hand, say to you, love your enemies and pray for your persecutors. And then at the end of the passage, both to round out this section, also to summarize, as most people think, the, uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount from the beginning, at least in verse, to verse 20, Jesus is sort of sandwiching this section by saying, yes, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Let me put it another way. You must be perfect in the way that your heavenly Father is perfect. So we want to look in a few minutes at what it means to be perfect because uh, we're not. <laughs> and that is, uh, that's a, those are challenging words indeed. So with that background in mind and that uh, context in mind, let us look a little bit more carefully at our section, verses 43 to 48. Well, the logic it goes like this. This is the sixth antithesis where Jesus has said, you have heard it say, but I say. And then Jesus in verse 45 will give the purpose for his elaboration. And we'll look at that in a minute. And then he gives an explanation for the purpose. And then he provides two illustrations of what he's meaning. He's a good teacher and he provides illustrations. And then he gives the goal. The goal being the perfection of God in keeping with the character of God. So let's go now and look at verse 43. If you look at the translation that I've given at the top of the handout, you'll see that I've noted that it's in singular, but I've also cut out something. Jesus said, you shall love your neighbor. In the summary of the law that we read at the beginning of the liturgy, it actually said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus here doesn't say as yourself. Um, he means it. He knows it. This comes from, from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. But I think that Jesus limited the statement to not include as yourself because of the point that he's going to make very shortly. You see, if I love my neighbor as myself, the assumption is that I love myself. So we've got this kind of an in-group. I love you just like I love me. But Jesus is going to blow the lid off that love requirement and say, I want to take it much further. And I want to say that you need to love your enemies. So um, for the purposes of his point, the as yourself part, as true as it is, uh, took something away from what he wanted to elaborate. And of course, the statement, you shall hate your enemy, is nowhere to be found in Scripture. This is what uh, people inferred the law meant. Um, I'm to love my fellow Israelite. Uh, as a Christian, I'm to love my fellow Christian. But as for those pagans out there, well, you know, um, God be rid of them and the sooner the better. That was kind of the idea. And so Jesus is summarizing what was popularly understood to have been kind of convention. Um, you know, you love your neighbor, and that means you don't have to pay attention to the others. In fact, uh, you can disregard them, maybe even hate them. And it's interesting that in the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, there were statements to the effect that um, this community, which had set themselves apart to live under um, um, the expectation of a coming of more than one Messiah, uh, they had um, a teacher who was called the teacher of righteousness and the enemies were the sons of darkness and they were actually encouraged to, to hate the, the, uh, the sons of, uh, of darkness. Um, so Jesus might be referring to that or maybe even Jesus is picking up on some of the uh, Psalms that talk about 
us hating the enemies of God and uh, putting a certain curb on that and reminding us that um, in loving the sinner, uh, we are not given reason to love the sin, but uh, the danger is that we hate the sin so much that we also hate the sinner. Uh, so Jesus is making it clear that he, on the other hand, says to us, love your enemies. Love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. By adding the statement, pray for those who persecute you, he's saying to us that we need to um, not just kind of participate in a token love of our enemies, but that we are to proactively pursue and seek the love of our enemies, the well-being of our enemies, the prosperity of our enemies. Well, people have tried to find precedents for this elsewhere, and they have been successful to a certain extent, but there is absolutely no one, not even the most hard-nosed rationalistic critic of the New Testament, who is willing to say other than that this is original to Jesus. This comes from the historical Jesus on absolutely anybody's reckoning. It was Jesus who taught us to love our enemies. And so Jesus, when he's on the cross, um, he uh, says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And his disciples picked up on this such that Stephen in Acts chapter eight, in the midst of his being martyred, he prays for the forgiveness of those who are in the process of killing him. We want to go back and tease that out a little bit more later on because it's really at the heart of what Jesus is saying here and it's difficult. But that's the antithesis and here there's a wonderful statement in verse 45 that gives us the purpose, at least of this elaboration of Jesus. So that you may be sons of your father who is in the heavens, so that you may be sons of your father who is in the heavens. Now, it's easy to overlook this, maybe because we don't understand it. But Jesus is saying, in effect, this. I am telling you to love your enemies, not because it's a success strategy. In fact, uh, your enemy may just continue to hate you. Um, they might like you. But my point is not that this is a, su a success strategy. My point is that it's in the nature of God, in whose image you're made, to, um, to do this. And so if we pray for our persecutors and we love our enemies, we will actually be acting like and behaving like God. God the Father who is in the heavens. Uh, in the earlier antithesis, we were reminded uh, when uh, Jesus came to speak about O's that we weren't to swear by heaven because that was the seed of God. We weren't to swear by earth because that was the footstool of God. And we weren't to swear by Jerusalem because that's the city of God. So this is something that I think is really important and that we often overlook, and it's this, that there's a relationship between the character of God on the one hand and morality on the other. There's a relationship between God's character and our ethics. If you do a careful study of the book of Proverbs and wisdom literature, you'll see that sometimes if the king, for example, conducts his affairs justly, um, the weather's good. Um, it's as though there's kind of a, an ecological component to morality that owes this fact to the that that owes itself to the fact that God is the author of morality and God is also the author of nature. 
So um, there's a biological harmony between God who made the world and who made us as moral beings and the laws that he gives us. So the reason we should love our enemies and pray for our persecutors, so we're told here, is that so we may be children. We may be in a closer relationship with our Father who is in the heavens. Now, the Father who is in the heavens lives in an ideal world, as Jesus sometimes pictures it. Um, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we're brought into this ideal reality and we're reminded, my friends, that God loves people who we regard to be enemies. And Jesus embodied this in his life as the Son of God, as the incarnate Son of the Father. And so that's the rationale for loving our enemies. Not that it's easy, not that it feels good, uh, not that it means necessarily that you're going to sort of how win people over, win a war, whatever, but it's, it's, it's who God is, and it's in the nature of God. Jesus makes this clear in the third part by offering an explanation in verse 45b. And he reminds us of the way in which God conducts himself in the world. He says, for his sun shines on both the evil and the good. And he sends rain down on the righteous and the unrighteous. So his point is, is that God blesses um, the, uh, the unrighteous as well as the righteous. The sun shines on them all. Um, it doesn't just rain in the, uh, in the field of the righteous farmer. It rains in the field of the unrighteous farmer as well. And so um, it's on this basis that uh, we are given this second prescription. And Jesus is reminding us of the fact that God does not give preferential treatment. You know, there's kind of another side to that that's hard. I don't know about you, but I always find it really discouraging when um, your favorite hardworking model in the faith gets cancer, just like everybody else. Um, there's, 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 there's kind of a, a, a harsh side to the, to the impartiality of God when it comes to the way in which he governs his universe. But it really is true that in terms of the natural nature of theology, that um, God um, is as um, kind and loving towards some as he is to others. I'm not talking about soteriology and spirituality. I'm just simply talking about the way it works in ordinary life. You know, when you go to work and it's raining, uh, there's not uh, this little uh, invisible umbrella over your head that's keeping you from getting uh, wet and uh, the person who you and God might rightly regard as a bit of a rascal uh, isn't getting wet. And then Jesus wants to drive the point home by giving two negative illustrations of preferential love in verses 46 and 47. He says, if you love those who love you, well, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do this. And then the second illustration is quite like it. If you uh, say hello to the people that you like in your neighborhood and the people who are nice to you, well, there's nothing special about that. Everybody knows to do that. It's the, if you scratch your back, if I scratch your back, you'll scratch mine philosophy. And Jesus says that is about as pagan and ordinary as it gets. And that's not how we are to be. And it ties back to the problematic phenomenon of loving our enemies. That person that drives you crazy. The person that no matter how hard you try to be nice, just, I don't know, he's got a thing. I, um, at one point in my life, 
had a neighbor. Um, I'm going to be general here, so I don't uh, betray any secrets, who was clearly the most difficult person that I've ever encountered. Um, this was a person who was preoccupied with the property next door. And um, our house was on the property line. And if the rain fell down the wall, that was an issue for her um, because the water was going onto her property line. And she once even called the police because I was uh, washing the deck and water was running down the wall onto her property. The police came and um, they said, what's the problem? I explained it. And one of the policemen turned and he said, uh, hey, I hear it's going to rain tonight. As if, you know, like, what is the problem? Well, one day, uh, this neighbor who prevents me from um, uh, putting a, a dryer vent or anything in the wall because that would invade this person's space uh, in this house that we lived in or live in. Uh, one, one day, I heard a drilling noise and the neighbor was drilling a hole in my wall. And I thought, woo, this would really be forbidden if I were to do anything like that. So I went out and looked and the person denied it and they said, uh, what's the problem here? I'm not doing anything. And I said, well, I thought I heard a noise, but that, that's okay. Never mind. More drilling noise. And I thought, love your enemy. So I went out and I said to the person, you are welcome to drill a hole in my wall. And I thought so virtuous. I mean, I just thought, oh, this was great. This is exactly what God wants me to do. Love my enemies. But then the person turned and sneered me and said, oh, you can drill a hole in my wall. I've already done it. Who cares? Well, at that point, I lost it. <laughs> and I just blew my lid. I just said, how dare you? You know, here I had been trying to go this extra mile and you just come back. So the whole love your enemy thing just kind of blew up in my face. But what was really bad was I blew up in her face. So this whole love your enemy thing is uh, problematic. And we're not as good at it, even as we might think we are at the best of times. And um, I felt guilty for, for that ever since, but I simply wasn't expecting that level of enemy to come from the other person. So the challenge would be, find that person in your life and ask, are you praying for their welfare? Are you hoping for their good? Um, are you, um, you know, uh, extending kindnesses, um, you know, do you, you pick up trash that's in, on their lawn? Uh, do you shovel their snow? Uh, do you really wish them well? That's what Jesus says we ought to do here. And if we only do it to the people who are going to be nice to us back, we're no different than anybody else. It is this impartial love that's important. It's non-preferential. It's doing it because it's the God thing to do that characterizes us as Christians. So Jesus is giving us an incredible challenge here. And then he finally says, as if to sum it all up and as if to, to press home the point, you all shall therefore be perfect. This is one of those public thou shalt be things, friends. This is in the imperative thou shalt be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect thou shalt be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect 
Now, before I forget, which I might, I just want to dwell for a minute on what this word perfection means. It's easy to downplay on the one hand, uh, and I don't think Jesus is saying anything less than, than, than perfection here. Um, but in what sense is it perfect? Well, given the preceding context, I think that perfection is best illustrated by this whole idea about going the extra mile, about doing the extraordinarily loving, um, about going, as I've said already, deeper and wider. But one of the illustrations of perfect comes from another passage in Matthew's Gospel. And if you flip over your page uh, to the second page, you'll see um, in the third example of illustrative passages that I have on the second page, Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 to 19, we see another case later on in the Gospel where we get a similar sort of a picture. And you'll actually see here, by the things that I've underlined, that this is kind of like the Sermon on the Mount all over again. A man came up to Jesus and said, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And notice the connection here between the question about a good thing and a good God. Jesus has this ethic in mind. He has this, this, this relationship between being good and God's goodness. Because he says to him, why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. Remember, friends, ethics of goodness owes itself to the character of God. And we are good, not because it's the nicest thing to do, but because it's who God is. And our goal is to be like God. And then Jesus said, if you want to enter life, obey the commandments. And here, the, the, uh, the, the, the rich young man, we'll soon find out that he's a rich young man. He says, which commandments? And that's interesting. We, 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 we dealt with this at the beginning of the discussion of the law, didn't we? Which of those commandments in the Old Testament are we supposed to keep? And without really saying it, I suggested that we would do well to um, keep them all unless we have reason not to. So it's not just the Ten Commandments uh, and, and a few others, but we ought to find out what lies behind them all, except for those which are explicitly set aside with the New Covenant, things like sacrifices and so on. But anyway, Jesus gives a list, and look at what's in his list, because it's very similar to the list that we see in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus replied, do not murder, do not commit adultery. You see, the ones that I've underlined are the ones that are in part of the antitheses that we find in chapter 6. Do not steal. That one's not there. Do not bear false testimony. That one is, is there. Honor your father and your mother and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, it's interesting. If you look at these laws, you'll find that Jesus um, has been meditating in the Sermon on the Mount and here on a, a couple of key passages in the Old Testament. If I were to ask you where you find the Ten Commandments, and you knew your Bible well, you'd probably say, well, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5, and you'd be right. But there's kind of a third list, and that third list is found in Leviticus chapter 19, which is on uh, item 2 on the back of your page. And here we find kind of another mini summary of the Ten Commandments. And it's at the end of that that we find the statement in verse 18, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So what I'm saying is that Jesus did a lot of meditating on Leviticus chapter 19. You've been spending a lot of time in Leviticus lately in your quiet time? Uh, perhaps not. 
But our Lord, our Savior, was meditating upon the book of Leviticus. And chapter 19, in fact, contains a number of laws that are practical and applicable to daily life, and I encourage them for you. So here Jesus gives a list that is reminiscent of the Sermon on the Mount, that is reminiscent of Leviticus 19, that is reminiscent of Exodus chapter 20, that is reminiscent of Deuteronomy chapter 5. But then the man says, all these I've kept since my youth. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Here I suggest is an important clue that comes from Jesus himself about what it means to be perfect. It's not moral perfection. Thank God for that because none of us could attain to it. But it's this willingness to just kind of be all out for God and all out for God's purposes and all out for God's goodness. It has to do with the depth and the breadth and the, the heart behind it. And so Jesus says, well, if you want to go, the, if, you want to, if you want to know what I'm all about, it's about perfection. And if you want to know what else you need to do, well, go that far. Sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. So in answer to the question, what perfection is in, uh, in uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, I think we get a good clue here. And it doesn't involve doing more uh, because the Pharisees were already good at that. So when you think about the law about adultery, it's not that Jesus is just sort of saying, add lust, add lust, there's one more thing, another thing on the box, but it has to do with what your, where your heart it is. And it has to do with your sentiments, your motivations and your passions for God. Another way of putting it was, um, be all out in all ways for God. At the title of my handout, I put, Christian perfection is the width with which disciples are corporately able to embrace others. Not just those we like, not just those who are our friends, but all others. It is not the height to which they are able individually to climb. So that, I suggest, might help us as we think about what it means to be perfect, and our perfection is to echo that of our Father in heaven. So we're not off the hook, but hopefully we're a little bit more informed. In the time that's left, I want to draw attention to a few things that come from the passages that we have before us. Um, and I want to invite us to look again at Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2. Now, Leviticus chapter 19, I've said, um, was... Um, the primary focus, so it would seem, of this part of what Jesus was meditating on when he was giving the Sermon on the Mount. And you'll notice that the statement, you shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, is echoed in Leviticus 19, 2, by you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And it's almost as though Jesus is using these synonymously. Jesus was certainly familiar with this, and we are called to be holy. But I agree with one commentator who notes that Jesus probably substituted the word perfect here because of the connotations of holy. Holy means set apart. You know, you're distant from those people and what they're doing. And there's a good part of holiness. It means purity. It means avoiding sin. But that shunning connotation that the Pharisees were associating with holiness is what Jesus wants to avoid, which is why I suggested we need to leave out why Jesus left out in this case the as yourself. He was wanting the focus to be on the other and all out for the other, not to anything that would exclude 
um, involvement uh, and love for the other. So I think that Jesus is here using the term perfect in the same kind of a way that, um, that Leviticus uses the term holy, only it's kind of more well-rounded for Jesus's purposes here. It is more kind of integrative and uh, the Pharisees were good at personal holiness. To this day, if you walk in the Orthodox neighborhood of Jerusalem, um, you'll see um, one of those uh, Jewish people who is uh, dressed in an Orthodox fashion. Their passion is God. Their love is for God. They are earnest in prayer. But if you walk up the street toward them, they will cross over to the other side of the street so in order to stay away from you because you are impure. Um, and when that happens, I felt like going, well, you rascal, you know, I came admiring you and you, you can even cross the street. You know, I'm not so bad as a Gentile. Well, it's that holiness thing that, uh, that I think Jesus is wanting to avoid in this particular um, connotation. The other thing I want to draw attention to is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22, verses 35 to 39. And I mentioned at the beginning of the liturgy that Jesus actually um, innovated uh, and he uh, used Leviticus 19.18 as sort of the trump card summary of the rest of the law. But we ought not to forget the first part. And in commentaries that I was reading on the Sermon on the Mount, a lot of people, I think, forgot about this first part. They were saying, oh, we just need to be more inclusive and we need to, you know, love everyone and love our enemies and everything's okay. And the more people that we can bring in, the better. And that's all, that's all true. But an implication from that would be to compromise the moral standard that we're given. And that's where love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your soul come in. We're not to compromise on the morality of God and the principles of God. And we're to love our neighbors unconditionally, as it were, but not at the point where we're winning, where we are willing to pretend that sin isn't sin. Because God is holy. And so um, we need to remember, yes, to love our neighbors as ourselves, but to remember that the first law is a passion for God. So we bring those two together. Now, unfortunately, what happens is that some people, um, they love God so much, they hate their neighbor. Um, and that is kind of a, a sign of a sort of distorted, um, bent up kind of a, a fundamentalist attitude or something. Um, not, that, uh, not that all fundamentalists um, are like that, but that's one of the characteristics of, um, of, of it is that there can be kind of a self-righteousness that comes through this. Let me see, just draw attention to another part about the perfection. Because in Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 to 19, the story goes on after Jesus uh, tells the man to go and sell everything that he had, the man doesn't. And then there's an interesting discussion that I think helps us understand um, perfection and, and, and uh, how we understand perfection. The man went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus talks about the practical impossibility of a rich man entering the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, this is a no starter. This guy was so rich, he didn't have a chance of entering the kingdom of heaven because my expectation of him was that he would sell everything he had and that's pretty hard to do. Well, then the disciple says, Lord, then who can enter the kingdom? And Jesus says, basically, uh, well, it's impossible. But with God, everything's possible. <laughs> so uh, are you going to be perfect? Um, it's impossible, humanly speaking. But with God, everything's possible. And here one could invoke imputed righteousness from Paul or something, but that's, that's, that's moving in a different direction. So with perfection, 
It's impossible, humanly speaking. Entering the kingdom of heaven is impossible, humanly speaking. But with God, everything is possible. And my friends, God is good. God is gracious. God sent his son to die for our sins so that anyone who puts their trust in him might receive salvation. And then Jesus throws out in verse 30 another little twist on this. And he says, the last will be first and the first will be last. And then in chapter 20, he tells a story um, about um, the... um, the the vineyard workers, and how the last person gets paid as much as the first person. So who ends up being righteous and who ends up at the top of the pile isn't up to you or me. It's ultimately the prerogative of God. God wills it. And that puts the ball back in God's court and not on our court to, uh, to earn it as we might or we must. Let me conclude with two concrete perfections or concrete, not perfections, but concrete illustrations or uh, applications. The first would be to examine our prayer life. I don't know about you, but I spent a lot of time praying for myself and praying in small groups for other people. Uh, You know, so-and-so's aunt who has, uh, you know, uh, um, a gallbladder problem, and those things are all good. Don't get me wrong for a minute. But the pagans do that. I mean, you know, anybody will pray if they're in desperate enough condition, you know, God help me, I'm in trouble. So we need to have more of an outward focus to our prayers. And I want to remind us to pray for the Taliban, to remember that the child of uh, an imam is every bit as loved by God as uh, the grandchildren of Billy Graham. Um, God has this universal kind of a love and we ought to, we ought to embrace it and we ought to, to reach out and accept it. So what is our prayer life like? And then secondly, it comes as a challenge from Scott McKnight, who wrote a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, if you want to apply the principle of love your enemies, you need to do two things. Identify your enemy, which isn't easy because we'd like to think that we have none, but we all have our prejudices. We all have our enemies. Identify your enemy and then work towards them becoming a neighbor and a child of God. Pray. For them as though they become a neighbor and a child of god pray for the prosperity of your enemy what an odd thing to do what an inhuman unhuman thing to do what a godly thing to do identify our enemies and then pray for their well-being may god help us to do that by his grace amen